Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This podcast may contain, but is not limited to, strong language, sexual content, violence, and death. This podcast may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Hi, I'm Christina. And I'm Crystal. Welcome Welcome to to Crime Crime Night. Night. Tonight's episode is about the Murdoch murders. Maggie Kennedy Branstetter Murdoch, also known as Maggie for short, was born on September 15, 1968 to Kennedy Hubbard and Terry Lee Branstetter. In 1991, she graduated from the University of South Carolina and she was a member of the Kappa Delta sorority. Maggie met Richard Alexander Murdoch, also known as Alex, which is what we will refer to him as um, at the university. And Maggie and Alex would end up marrying each other. After graduating, Alex worked as an attorney at an influential law firm titled Peters, Murdoch, Parker, Eltsroth, and Diedrich, or PMPED. The law firm was started by his great-grandfather, Randolph Murdoch Sr. in 1910. Alex dealt in personal injury law. And that included product liability, wrongful death suits, among others. He also served part-time as a prosecutor for the 14th Judicial Circuit. And there was actually three generations of Murdoch's that had served as the South Carolina 14th Judicial Solicitor, which is basically South Carolina's version of a district attorney. And the Murdoch's held that position from 1920 to 2006. Very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the 14th Judicial Circuit Solicitor is the only judicial circuit in the state of South Carolina that actually covers five counties. Uh, the counties that it covers includes uh, Beaufort, uh, Colton, Hampton, Jasper, and Allendale. Um, the Murdoch family's power definitely has taken shape over uh, law enforcement, um, local courtrooms, just, you know, politically and legally Yep, for nearly a century. So they've had uh, power in that town for a, a very long, long time. Get money. You can, yeah, so. you can buy off the, the police and politicians, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, well, they were, you know, friendly with them, so... Mm. They uh, they definitely had influence within that town for sure. Right. Once you have somebody running in that type of a of a field for that long, that their family mm-hmm. was in that in those positions for, I mean, that's just it's it's out of a respect too. I mean, it's yeah, they have it's a, kind of like they have that uh, lineage, yeah, the roots there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's and I'm sure it's it covers course many of years i mean almost almost 100 years that that they held this position within Mm -hmm. their family and i'm sure a lot of the other like lawyers and and judges and um, police and all that stuff i'm sure there was a lot of change of hands throughout the years and they were probably all familiar with the murders too yeah you know very influential family for sure Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Now, Maggie and Alex had two sons. Um, The first son that they had was Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr. And they would name, uh, call him actually Buster for for a nickname. And then there was Paul Terry Murdoch. Now, he was born on April 14th of 1999. Um, And Maggie 
enjoyed very prestigious lifestyle that she had after she married um, the, into the Murdoch family, which was kind of like a legal dynasty, so to speak. Their their family was kind of known as just because of the 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 bloodlines that they had within that community and that type of career. Now, Maggie would uh, split her time between um, their 1,770-acre um, estate, which was named the Moselle, and that was in Islandton, South Carolina. And then she would spend the other part of her time at their beach house in Edisto Beach. I Islandton um, had a population of 44 only. It's a nice little... Small little area. I'd be in heaven. <laughs> Islington is in the Low Country area, which is approximately 60 miles from uh, Charleston. And Eddington Beach is on the um, eastern coastline of Colleton County. Uh, Maggie enjoyed attending events with her husband, Alex, and the two boys at their local yacht club. Um, and she also enjoyed swimming and going out on the family boat. So she had a nice little leisure activities she would do. And uh, Paul Terry Murda, he loves the outdoors. He especially loved to go hunting with his dad and his brother. Uh, he was a junior at the University of South Carolina, um, like his parents, so he kind of followed in their footsteps. He also enjoyed going to um, the school's sports games with his family and cheering on the Gamecocks as their uh, teams were called with his family and his friends. And uh, Paul was always, you know, he's willing to help, you know, anyone in need. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of friends and, mm -hmm. you know, he kind of made friends wherever he went. I wonder if that had something to do with the type of family that he was raised in with the being very prestigious and prominent in the, in the area mm -hmm. that played into it too, with the uh, kids having lots of friends. And I would imagine that, yeah. you know, it was easy to make friends when people know that your family is the family influent influential connected <laughs> yes yeah yeah so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people hung out with him because of that yeah so that was i was wondering mm -hmm. i mean i i don't know but i would think that that would be part of it as one of the wealthiest and most prominent families in south carolina the murdoch family seemed to have it all however their name came up in several suspicious deaths. So on July 8th of 2015, a 19-year-old nursing student named Stephen Smith was found dead um, just before 4 a.m. in the middle of Sandy Run Road in Hampton County. He appeared to just have been kind of left for dead in the middle of the road there. His entire face was just covered in blood and he had a gaping hole on the right side of his head and his head was actually misshapen from the amount of blunt force trauma that he had endured. And his right shoulder was partially dislocated and he had cuts and bruises all over his right hand. His shoes were still on and his clothes had appeared to be untouched. His phone and keys were in his pocket and the investigators on the scene were, you know, 
confused by the amount of injuries on his head compared to on his, you know, body. Yeah, and and he still like, has his shoes on. Yeah, and he they his clothes aren't really yeah. ruffled up. Uh, they thought it was strange that he didn't have like he had such trauma to his head, but not really anything to yeah. his body. And um, they actually found his car about three miles away on the side of Bamberg Highway. And his wallet was actually still in his car, which seems kind of very odd. Yeah, it seems kind of weird because you would think if he was getting out of his car, he'd probably take his wallet with him. Yeah. I mean, if you if you think you're going somewhere, say he ran yeah. out of gas, you're going to have to go get gas or something mm -hmm. like that you would need your wallet in order to pay for the gas or mm -hmm. that's just kind of odd i mean he had a cell phone and his, and his keys in his pocket yeah, so most people would take no you know, their like their wallet keys and phone are like usually what people would take and he kind of yeah. left his wallet behind which seems kind of kind of odd to me yeah and um south carolina highway patrol detectives actually indicated that the gas cap was unscrewed and just hanging outside of the uh, gas cap door so i guess it appeared that he is possibly out of gas maybe which makes it even weirder that he would leave his wallet because you know if you're out of gas you need to go get something you would need your wallet to get it yeah unless he really wasn't out of gas and they just unscrewed it to mm -hmm. make it appear that he was mm -hmm. out of gas to kind of throw him off because i mean it's if his, his wallet's in there he's missing his phone and keys are on him it, it just seems a little bizarre did he go with somebody did he know somebody did yeah you would think like if you're know. and this seems to be kind of a more rural area mm -hmm. and you would think that if you ran out of gas you're probably far away from a the nearest gas station yeah, you probably, so you have, probably to have to call a friend or something to come get you mm -hmm. and take you to the nearest gas station to fill up a mm. a jug to at least get your car started to get to right. <laughs> far enough to get to the gas station you know to fill the rest of the way up yeah so it kind of like would mm. seem like he'd you know want to take his wallet and that he before opening his gas thing you'd think he would have call somebody and come back and they would have found at least a gas can or something and well if you know you ran out of gas the first thing you're gonna do is if you're that far away you're gonna call somebody you're not gonna mm -hmm. unscrew your gas cap I, that's why i'm if i'm wondering this was in 2018 somebody... like most likely he had you know a car that would register that you're either low or if it was you know broke for yeah i just think that that was kind of to throw people off because of the way it just seems it just mm -hmm. seems like you're not gonna unscrew your gas can or your gas cap until you have the gas to fill it up with. Yeah, this is kind of weird. I don't know. Unless somebody came by and just siphoned his car because they found it on the, middle, <laughs> yeah, it could be the a side thing. of the road. At some point, they're like, We're, this car's been sitting here. We're going to just take the gas. So initially, his death was thought to be a hit and run. However, the coroner actually ruled it a shooting homicide. So the gas on the side of his head would have been probably from a gunshot yeah. then? Okay. Is what, yeah. It was ruled at this point. So during the search of the area, they were unable to find any evidence. There was no um, bullets, no gun residue, um, no tire marks, no like chunks from a vehicle that may have hit him. Like they found absolutely just nothing, no evidence. So either he didn't really get hit by a vehicle or he got hit by a vehicle and they moved him. 
well, they ruled it a but, shooting, a homicide. Oh, that's right. Which would probably make more sense why his car was yeah, the way that. it was, I would think, because... There has to be somebody he knew. If it was a hit and run, like, you think his um, body would have more damage to it? Yeah, and usually if they're, if he's sustaining that much of an injury, when somebody hits you, most of the time you're going to end up losing your shoes because you're going to go flying. And that just seems the thing that happens is the common like when people yeah, mm-hmm. get hit um, by a vehicle more times than not, I guess they lose their shoes. Yeah. And a gunshot would, you know, I think uh, would make more sense because he's got like one major wound on his yeah. head, which is where typically people yeah. who are going to kill somebody tend to try and shoot in the head area because that's more of a yeah, but likely not, that they're going to. I'm not getting the dis- dislocated yeah. shoulder then either. Well, that could have been like in a, if his shoulder is dislocated and he had cuts on his hand, that could have just been defensive. So actually within hours of the coroner's ruling, the um, pathologist at the Medical University of South Carolina actually ruled it back to a hit and run, which personally I thought the, the shooting would make more sense yeah. from the damage like the injuries that he had sustained unless somebody's trying to cover something up yes so um this you know ruling back to hit and run was actually confusing to investigators as well as people who had known steven mm-hmm. and they were just skeptical of this mm-hmm. new ruling of a hit and run especially when it goes from one to another back to another mm-hmm. it makes you feel yeah. like, like i understand like at first thinking it's a hit and run um, before really seeing the full spectrum of his injuries and whatnot and seeing yeah. that, like, there's blood coming from his head and he's laying in the middle of the road. But then once they saw the wound and stuff, it kind of made more sense that it was a shooting. Yeah. But they, have, they didn't find any bullet casings, not a bullet in his head, which I think, I don't know, which seems weird. It just seems very... Bullet or did he get hit with something? Did somebody hit him with something? Maybe in the head of baseball bat or or something. something. I would think something metal more, pole or like more pointy. If they had, if he had a gaping wound that wound that may have looked like a bullet wound, I would think it would be something more like pointy, maybe like a tarn yeah. or something. A tire iron. Tire iron. <laughs> I can't even say it. Oh, a tire iron. I know. I run those together. I'm sorry. A tire iron. Tire iron. Anyway, Stephen's case went cold after less than a year, and the Murdaugh's name actually came up in the investigation over 40 times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know, quite a quite a lot. And the investigation into his death was very chaotic, and clearly of their change in mm. his cause of death right. constantly within just hours. I would of say back to back being dead. Yeah, they yeah. like changed it and changed it again, and. And they had um, jurisdictional confusion as well with it. And there was actually suspicions of investigative interference within the investigation. Which I could see that with a very powerful family. If this name's coming up 40 different times within mm-hmm. a short period of time. And this family has a lot of power. With the within... police and the yeah. courts. and. I mean, it just sounds a little... Hanky. So suspicious. Yes. Hanky. Yes. Hanky. Is that an old term? I don't know. It just sounded like it. <laughs> well, hanky. Yes, it's an old term. 
So on September 16th, Stephen's mom, Sandy, wrote a letter to the lawmakers and the police agencies pleading for help claiming corruption with the investigation. So apparently she had the same feeling that there was something going on. Um, the police were confused. She was confused. So this just seems chaotic. There was um, some evidence that was missing, such as like the DNA um, that was underneath Stephen's fingernails. He had probably like skin under it or something, probably from fighting back defensive mm -hmm. wounds. Um, yeah, or the, even blood if he cut the yeah. person. Um, his the clothing he was wearing and a rape kit. So apparently he was possibly raped. They might well. just test for that anytime anyone's dead. They probably test for that just in case. Yeah, makes sense. You never know. Makes sense. So at one point, Stephen's family was told that the Murdoch brothers were involved in the death, but there was really no, no proving it. They were just suspected of doing it. So Sandy also believed that the Murdoch's influenced, um, hindered their investigation. So once again, another, another person feeling that the Murdoch's power and, you know, their, their stature that they have within the community came into play. So um, just three years later in 2018, their housekeeper, 57-year-old Gloria Saderfield, actually died in a trip and fall accident, um, which happened at the Murdaugh's Hampton home, which they were living at at the time mm -hmm. of her death. And her obituary actually listed the Murdaugh's as being like family. Her sons eventually brought a wrongful death lawsuit against the Murda family, and they ended up settling for $505,000. That's a lot of money to be settling at a court. Yeah, well, okay. it's probably, they had the money, so it was probably right. easier to settle it out of court because... Then drag it on and mm -hmm. drag their name through the news and negative. Yeah. Especially and... three years earlier, there was an incident It could have been possibly... And when it, it's a work, like, because that would be her employer. Uh, and so it's like a work incident. Yeah. So the employer's in charge of having like a safe environment. So even proving that it was unsafe could have proved a wrongful death. Because yeah. it's not like a murder charge where you have to have, you know, enough evidence to be, you know. Beyond shadow of a doubt. So on February 24th of 2019, there was a 911 call that was placed from the Archer's Creek, which was near Paris Island, um, where there was a boat that had crashed. And the boat had six passengers on it at the time, including 19-year-old Mallory Beach and Paul Murdaugh. Uh, when the boat crashed, the passengers actually were hurled from the boat. So like all, all of them were oh, actually hurled into the waters and in mm -hmm. february so it must have been a a, a hard enough crash yeah that yeah is. and in february in those cold waters mm -hmm. ugh, so when the passengers were actually hurled from the boat um everybody was accounted for except for mallory beach um she went missing mm -hmm. now on march 3rd of 2019 um after a week of searching for her um, a voter actually found her body and called 911 to report her um, that he had found the body in the marsh area 
near the Broad River Boat Landing in Beaufort County. Also in March of 2019, the Beach family actually filed a wrongful death lawsuit. And this was against a Beaufort County bar, a convenience store, and two homeowners. Uh, the suit claimed that they had served Mallory and her friends alcohol and they were all underage at the time. So the lawsuit was later amended to name Alex and Buster, as well as Parker's convenience store. And the suit actually alleged that Buster allowed his younger brother, Paul, to use his ID to buy alcohol. Did he allow him to use it or did Paul borrow it from him? You know, I mean, it could have went either way. And being Mm. from a privileged family, they probably are like, whatever. If you use my ID, it doesn't matter because we'll just get out of it. Mm -hmm. Because of the influence. Paid out of it, bought out of it, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to say. On April 18th of 2019, Paul was indicted and charged of voting under the influence, which I never knew was a thing. Yeah. any ve- Operating any vehicle under the influence, you could get... I just it, figured it'd be like driving under the influence, but apparently it's voting under the influence. Yeah, that's a separate charge because you're in the water. Yeah, and... I just never thought about it. So anyways, the voting under the influence would cause death. And um, there was two counts of voting under the influence causing great bodily harm and injury. It was alleged that Paul actually crashed his father's boat and he was actually going at a high rate of speed. Um, He crashed it into a bridge um, and he was extremely intoxicated. And this actually took place after him and one of his friends kind of had a fight um, about his drinking, basically. On May 6th of 2019, Paul pled not guilty to all charges, and he was released on a $50,000 bond. Now, I know here in the state we're in, in order to bond out, you have to pay 10%. Now, I don't know what it is in South Carolina, but that's quite a bit of money. They're not new money. They have old yeah. Money that they've had building for generations. Yeah. On June 4th of 2021, after the court-ordered mediation in the wrongful death lawsuit failed, the case was heading for trial. So just a few days later, on June 7th at 10.07 p.m., a 911 dispatcher received a frantic call from Alex, who reported his 52-year-old wife, Maggie, and 22-year-old son, Paul had been shot. The bodies were found outside the family's home at the dog kennels, which were like a good ways away from the house mm-hmm. on the Islington estate. Yeah, if you look at the 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 um, layout of the land, you can look at get a satellite vis- view of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite a ways away. Mm-hmm. So Alex you know, was clearly in distress. He was sobbing and gasping, and he asked. For, you know, the police and ambulance to hurry up to the home um, and stated that um, neither of them were had been breathing at the time of the phone call. So when he found them, they weren't breathing anymore. So why is he worried about them hurrying up if he already knows that they're not breathing? Well, because just because he can't feel them breathing doesn't mean he's not ne- they're not necessarily mm-hmm. alive. Okay. You, know, you could be breathing at a such shallow rate and still be alive that you can't tell 
that someone's breathing. So during the 911 call, he informed the 911 operator that um, nothing really seemed out of place. And he, you know, seemed to be moving around the property during the uh, 911 call. He seemed out of breath. And the... Hang um, on. One thing. Mm -hmm. If it's 10 o'clock at night and you're on your 1,770-acre property of land that has lots of trees around it. Well, I would imagine the area where it's going to be dark, probably lit, right? I would think like what near the Not dog kennels that they have lights. So. Yeah. I don't know, but he um seemed to be moving Sorry. around and at points he was out of breath. The 911 operator was able to hear the dogs barking when he was near the kennels, but there were points during the phone call that the operator could no longer hear the dogs barking, which would indicate that he had moved further away from the kennels and he didn't seem concerned that somebody else was still on the property which i mean it was 1700 acres how would... yeah but it probably never crossed his mind you, you that is come, true you come because... upon your your wife and your son mm -hmm. that you see are shot so your first instinct would be probably to offer help to them yeah and uh, obviously if they're to the point where they're not breathing any more than it's probably happened a while ago so it's not Right, yeah, like, there's uh, no just there's happened. No cut or dry, he doesn't know when it happened. Yes, although maybe I'm just paranoid, but if I had 1,700 acres, I'd be constantly paranoid that somebody's on my property. <laughs> me too, I'd be having a dog with me in the vehicle at all times, so I'm like, get out of my vehicle. Especially like in a wooded area, like you yeah. never know who's on your property at any point in time, because there's not really a way to yeah. keep Hide behind the trees. It's not like you could just look out your window and see if anyone's on your property. Like, mm. you'd have to, like, search for somebody if they were on your property. Mm -hmm. So the 911, you know, dispatcher asked Alex to put his uh, vehicle flashers on so that the emergency crew could see where he was because the house was and the kennels were kind of further from the road. So they couldn't be seen, you know, on the normal road. So I would imagine, you know, they probably had a long Yeah, it's all wooded way. there. It was all okay. wooded around their, their mm -hmm. house. Yeah, so it was a very rural area and mm -hmm. a lot of property. So it was probably quite a distance from the house to where the mm -hmm. street was for more privacy. The 911 dispatcher told Alex not to touch the victim, but he did um, tell them that he actually already did when he checked, you know, if they were breathing or not and he um actually at some point stated that he needed to get off the phone call to you know inform you know some family members and yeah probably whatever. the other son yeah his other son and maybe anyone else that like, brothers or something. yeah somebody he would be more comfortable with having him family you know with him yeah. like it's you know when you go through something like that it's if you have support it's you know easier yeah. to I would rather have somebody there with me than to be alone in you. that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Help get you through it for yep. sure. Mm -hmm. The Culleton County Sheriff's Office arrived 19 minutes later. So the 911 call actually lasted quite a while. I mean, they've actually have released it. So they only released portions of it because mm -hmm. it's been highly redacted. So you're, you get a good idea of what's going on, but I'm sure there's other stuff in there that they just took out that probably they don't want people to hear yeah it's probably important to the investigation yeah. and it's information that 
lot of times they'll leave out information when releasing to the public to mm -hmm. so that if somebody knows that information then they clearly either were there <laughs> or have heard from somebody else yep. who had been there or did it know. themselves yeah. mm -hmm. so after they arrived on the property they actually secured the um the land in the area where the, the murders took place and they had to do this actually before the fire and rescue could come in um and enter the property yeah so. because you got to make sure it's safe for you can't have fire rescue there trying to deal with with the victims while there's somebody else on the property and then you have more people's lives in danger so you gotta yeah because they're, not gonna, the be, scene they're not gonna be watching for anybody coming yeah because their of them concern is the people who or... have you know the yeah. victims that are there so that's that'd be the last it's thing safer mind, sure. and just easier to deal with mm -hmm. the situation once you've cleared the scene right right and at that point the fire and rescue actually requested for the coroner to be contacted um so i'm guessing that it was quite obvious at that point to the fire and rescue that, they, that perished. they were no longer alive at that point mm -hmm. the south carolina state law enforcement division which is also known as sled it was they were contacted by the sheriff's office to assist as well now the sled agency arrived on the scene at about 11:45 p.m. and they took over the case due to the sheriff's office having ties with the Murdoch family, um, and also because of the complexity of the case, they may not have been able to handle it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's a remember a area of 40 population of 44, so they're probably not used to handling stuff like this. And also, you know, when they know the victim or the victim's family as well as they do then it might look you know like they covering were tampering <laughs> with evidence or cover something up or you know yeah. it's just uh it was smart for them though yeah it, it could be it could to, be just an issue that. knowing the family as well as they do yeah yeah that was a smart move on their end mm -hmm. now of course since elk is the one that found them and he is the one that reported the murder he now is looked at as a person of interest which is common, common to have yeah. a spouse be a person of interest and you know and family members as well so they tend to mm -hmm. look at the people who are closest first because that's usually the people who mm -hmm. commit the crimes typically right. <laughs> on the night of the murder alex was reportedly taking his alien father to the hospital and then after he took his, his dad to the hospital, he actually went to go visit his mom who was suffering from dementia. Alex's father actually did pass away three days later of natural causes. And so now he's dealing with his wife and his son and now his father's death. So he has his hands full. Alex's alibi had uh, caused concern. Which makes sense because the people who he was with one of them has passed away and the other has dementia so hmm. not the most you know reliable when you know you have memory issues so. right mm -hmm. right authorities are looking into the possibility of the crime scene being manipulated there were also reports of several guns being removed uh, from the murdoch family's property um the night of the murder since the ellington estate is where the family hunted that would make sense that there was numerous guns on the property and mm -hmm. that they were being removed from the property 
Mm-hmm. Um, there has been no indication that any of the guns that were removed that evening um, from the estate were involved in that murder. So there, mm-hmm. there's nothing indicating that those were the guns that were used to shoot them and kill them. It would make sense. You know, you got to make sure you got to rule yeah. everything out that you can. Definitely. So. Also, there's a 2021 Chevy Suburban that was registered to the Murdoch law firm that was impounded on the crime scene. Which seemed a little weird. I don't know so why. There must have been something that indicated that. Well, maybe it was, was the it? wife's vehicle. Maybe because I would imagine sons? if the dog kennels are further away, that if they went to the kennels to and take care of the dogs, they would probably drive there because it's probably just, just easier. Night. Yeah, especially that late at night. And it would make sense that they were together because I, as a woman, if I mm-hmm. had to feed the dogs or take care of them. I wouldn't want to go by myself. Yeah. Like even just like, but as, as, even as a guy, guy, yeah, even just him, in general, if he like, was going to go by himself, I'd be like, oh no, somebody's coming with me, especially with yeah. a wooded area. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, that just would creep me out. Yeah, I couldn't so. do it. Mm-hmm. So that would make you know, yeah. sense. Although I would have taken like a weapon with me, which they maybe <laughs> did, and maybe it was not, or maybe they did find it and they just didn't release that information. But maybe the, you know, the mm. suburban has blood splatter or something in it that would yeah. you know give something like something to, to do situation. with the crime mm-hmm. yeah so however since the vehicle was impounded and um don't really know too much about it there was only evidence that was really reported that had been found were the spent shell casings mm-hmm. from yeah. the guns that were mm-hmm. used to kill them which i would imagine with this being so recent they're not releasing a lot of information at this time trying to you know get Mm -hmm. everything and i'm sure the the family's not talking i mean you have a family that has been in this background of law their Mm -hmm. whole lives basically so they know that not to talk so they're not going to be talking and telling people stuff either so there's nothing coming out yeah on that aspect either so the Colton County Coroner estimated the time of death to be between 9 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. I don't know what time it gets dark around there, but if, if it wasn't dark, it's probably at least starting to get, get dark, dusk. I would yeah. imagine. Um, it should be getting yeah. pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the coroner added that the victims had died a, of multiple gunshot wounds and that they were killed execution style. So there also appear to be two different um, type of guns used, a shotgun and an assault rifle. So it appeared that Paul was shot twice uh, with a shotgun and Maggie um, multiple times. They didn't have an exact number. Once the news broke to the media, authorities publicly indicated that there was no threat to the public. So, I mean, I could imagine in a situation like this, when they don't know who killed and there's like a double murder and they don't know who killed them, they probably have to put out some sort of a warning, you know, that to the public, whether yeah. it's somebody that large or yeah. there is no threat, which makes me curious as to what they know that there's no mm-hmm. threat. There must be some indication that they were, that this was a targeted isolated, attack isolated incident yeah yeah like that they were either mm-hmm. targeted or somebody within the family did or something like they there must be some type of information that i they wonder have. if with being shot execution style does that lead them to believe that it was isolated incident so that they just kind of figured that 
they didn't have to worry about somebody else being out and about. Yeah, something I would think there would be would be some more solid evidence that there was yeah. that this was definitely a targeted attack and it wasn't just like a random thing. Mm-hmm. There were also reports that Maggie and Alex have been experiencing trouble within their marriage. So now their relationship is being looked at in the investigation, which that's a common thing that they do when, you know, there's a husband and wife situation and one of them's murdered and there's no indication that they're not saying, you know, that this person actually really killed him or not, but the marriage falls into play on it, how their relationship was, how they were with their family. All that I would think stuff. even like if there was no indication that there were issues, they probably would still look into the relationship just mm-hmm. in case there were issues that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to admit that their marriage has issues, right. especially when one of them just died and that would make them look suspicious. Right. And you don't know. I mean, it, it could have been a lover's quarrel too. I mean, was mm-hmm. there another person involved within their marriage and affair in other words um and um yeah people define issues within the relationship different as well yes. so yes they do there's also reports that maggie's cell phone was obtained and the cell phone was actually found the following day and it was like down the street it wasn't like on their property so it was on the Which road just strange. outside of the property how did her phone get over there I like the only way I could think of that and no, maybe there's, I'm sure there's other ways, but what I'm thinking is maybe somebody took her phone. Maybe there was something on there. Whoever shot them. Yeah. Maybe took their phone and dropped it at some point. So maybe there's something in her phone that, uh, yeah, maybe this is why they got, maybe that's how they knew that Mm -hmm. it was an isolated incident and not, random yeah and i just thought it was weird that the cell phone is found you know outside the property down the road so i just thought it was kind of weird yeah that seems strange i mean unless maybe she dropped it there at some point but i would think that um if she would have lost it during the day or something like that if she she went for a walk or something or went to go get the mail or something and Mm -hmm. didn't realize she dropped it and didn't think about it yeah Yeah, i mean it really depends on how often somebody uses their phone if they're on it all the time or not and Mm -hmm. But not not everybody is always carrying their phone on. It just really depends on the person. Right, right. And it seems to be age demographic as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. And she was in her 50s, 50s. so she's not like a 20-year-old. Yeah, she was young 50s, though. I yeah. mean, I have my cell phone on me all the time. Uh, maybe she and just wasn't a big cell phone person. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, the, but it, she was less likely to have it on her at all times than a 20 year old who's like oh glued god to for it. sure for sure yeah so um with this being said that the authorities actually um search through alex's cell phone and other communication devices but there was no information on what they were looking for and what they have actually already found on these communication devices so there may have been something there but of course they're not going to release that mm-hmm. and you know anytime soon too early into the investigation for this mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and the murders actually happened you know just right after paul was bonded out of jail and awaiting he was awaiting court for the three felony charges of the boating incident that um ended in mallory's death and now a little over two months later there's you know, still no known um, suspects or motives or leads um, 
in conjunction with the double homicide, at least that they have released to the public or have stated that they have so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And the murders still to this day uh, remain a mystery. On June 16th, SLED agents searched a swampy area approximately two miles from their property and don't know what they were looking for, if they found what they were looking for or anything. So on June 17, Alex's brothers, Randy and John, appeared in an exclusive interview on ABC News. And they pled for anybody that had any information to come forward on the murders of Maggie and Paul. They said they didn't know if the family had any enemies, but they stated that Paul had been receiving um, threatening phone calls. And they believe that they were related to the boat crash that happened two and a half years ago with um, killing Mallory. Mm -hmm. And this, I'm sure, was still fresh in the community as it was getting ready to, you know, go to trial. So it was was something that the town was still dealing with at the time, even though it Mm -hmm. had happened. It was brought back up years earlier. Mm -hmm. On June 23rd, SLED started looking... um, into the 2015 death of Stephen Smith, um, which was based on the information gathered in the Murdoch. So I wonder if they, they so, must have found something that yeah. had to do with him while they're looking yeah, at that. I, so I, that, I find that very interesting. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I want to see how this ends, how the how this mm-hmm. actually ends up and everything that actually comes out of, mm-hmm. yeah, out of this. Be- it's going to be very interesting because there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of information is what it seems like that, yeah. that's in the play on this one. Mm-hmm. And on June 25th, members of the Murdoch family formally announced a $100,000 reward for information leading to the rest of the double homicide. And there is actually a deadline for this, which is going to be September 30th of 2021. So that's coming up. Yeah, coming up very soon. soon. Mm-hmm. So on July 7th, attorneys representing one of the survivors from the boating incident filed a petition alleging that law enforcement was actually trying to shift the blame from Paul to their client. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people have suggested that Mallory's family may have taken the law into their own hands. I would think most people who would take the law into their own hands would have done it like after yeah, a trial and, and like if he was like acquitted or something or not found yeah. guilty not um before he goes to trial i would think they would be invested in the outcome right i would think they want to have closure at that point they'd be mm-hmm. like closure for the family yeah. knowing what the outcome yeah after the two is. years they're angry with it you would have thought that would have happened more closer to the mm-hmm. incident itself yeah and but so at this point you would think they want mm-hmm it to go to trial and um the beach family has actually cooperated with authorities and they released a statement expressing their sympathies to the Murdoch family everyone that was involved in the boat incident has been cooperating with authorities um and there is speculation that someone else may have been on the property at the time of the murders and i would think Mm. that if this is just my thought is if they were shot with two different weapons, then maybe it was two people. Be more than, more than, more one, than person. one person, maybe, I'm thinking, because usually when you see two different weapons, it tends to be 
more than yeah, one there's person. Usually two shooters, at least two shooters. But, at least. Not always, yeah. but you know, and yeah. it seems like more commonly that's mm-hmm. how it is. Um, I, it, I do agree with that too. Mm-hmm. It is unknown whether Maggie or Paul were the prime target of the murders, mm-hmm. and Sled has been very careful not to release any important information, which it makes sense because mm-hmm. they don't want to release too much information that they compromise the case either somebody hears the information they have and know what leads to them and kind of gets out of town or yeah they need information to verify that that person knows something that wasn't released mm-hmm. as well so that's it's very common yeah that makes cases. sense and yeah mm-hmm. definitely so sled is looking for any clues that would help solve this double homicide Mm-hmm. Um, of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Sled actually set up a 24-hour-a-day tip line that is for information uh, regarding the ongoing investigation, and they can actually be reached at area code 803-896-2605 or Crime Stoppers of Low Country at 843-554-1111. And also, any tips can be given also to Crime Stoppers USA as well. And we'll have all that linked with our sources as well. Thank you for listening to Crime Night. You can find our sources on our website listed in the podcast description. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube under Crime Night Podcast. Please join us every other Wednesday at 6 p.m. Central Time. Good Good night. night.